Uh, let's ask God to help us understand his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is always true. We thank you that it directs us to Jesus, who alone can save us, and that through its teaching we can be equipped to live as his followers. And gracious Father, we pray that we would know that work tonight, that our hearts would be turned towards Jesus and we would be equipped. Help us to hear with understanding and faith and help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in February 1945, uh, there was a momentous meeting of the Allied leaders at the city of Yalta on the Black Sea coast of Crimea. Here, Churchill, Churchill, Roosevelt and Stalin met to discuss what would happen after the war against Germany ended. The agreement reached at that meeting influenced the history of Europe and the world for the decades that followed, with decisions affecting the partition of Germany, the integrity of Poland and, Poland and Soviet influence in Eastern Europe, the establishment of the United Nations and Russia's engagement with the war against Japan. It was a history-shaping meeting of the powerful. Yet the meeting of the leaders of a marginal and despised religious movement recorded in Acts 15 has had a far greater influence on world history, for it clarified the content of the Christian message and the character of the community of believers that message was giving birth to. You and I are affected by the decisions taken on that day, decisions about the basis, the grounds, on which we can be included in God's people, the grounds on which we are saved for eternity. So why did that Acts 15 meeting ever take place? What was the issue? What were the conclusions? And how do these conclusions affect us? The reader of Acts has just witnessed the success of Paul and Barnabas's spirit-directed mission. They had been appointed by the Spirit to take the gospel into what is now Turkey. And the Spirit has accompanied their ministry with powerful works, like the blinding of Elamas, who opposed the gospel on Cyprus, or the healing of the cripple at Lystra. Throughout the cities of Antioch in Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra and Derby, many Gentiles, that is, non-Jewish people, believed in the Lord Jesus. God, in the words of their report on returning to Antioch in Syria, had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. While that news was a cause of joy for some, it was disturbing to others. Jews and Gentiles have been divided from each other for centuries, divided by the Jewish commitment to the law given by Moses. That division had created a history of hostility between the two groups. For many Jews, Gentiles were by definition idolaters, sexually immoral, ritually unclean. It seemed strange to them that they could become the followers of the Jewish Messiah and included amongst the people of the Messiah, the Christ, without first becoming Jews. And to become a Jew, you had to commit yourself to the law. 
So we read that in Acts 15, some men came down from Judea, that is, down from Judea to Antioch, and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This was the position of a sizable number of Jewish believers in Palestine. People we read of in verse 5, those who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, who, who rose up and said it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Their position was clear. Repentance and faith in Jesus, the Christ, that is, the Messiah, are not enough to be included in the Messiah's people, to be included in those who will be raised to eternal life. You need more, they said, circumcision and obedience to the law of Moses. Those claiming this are serious, they're devout people, genuine in their commitment, people who in the past have been willing to suffer for their commitment to God and his law. And on face value, they would seem to have a good biblical argument. I mean, Abraham believed and then he got circumcised. He's the model. You start with faith and go on to circumcision. And Abraham's true child, Isaac, well, he was the one who was circumcised through birth. And they said, if you look at Jewish history, the promise to Abraham found fulfilment in the giving of the law at Sinai, which was God's law. So what has been true for Abraham and the Jewish people, they said, should be true for people coming to worship Abraham's God through faith in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. They should commit to circumcision and the law. They should be made to be circumcised and ordered to obey the law. And if they were committed to the law, they said it would make it possible for them to associate comfortably with Jewish people. The unity of the Jesus movement would be guaranteed. There'd be no more worries about eating unclean food or ritual contamination. So getting circumcised, obeying the law, they said, would have pastoral benefit. It sounded reasonable, but it provoked controversy. No small dissension and debate between these teachers and Paul and Barnabas, the gospel preachers. And there was good reason for that dissension. Their teaching through doubt on the gospel, the apostles were preaching that you were saved by faith in Christ, crucified and risen. Was that the whole message given by God? Or had they preached a deficient message, lacking vital information about salvation? Oh, this teaching that you had to be circumcised, keep the law, it challenged the basis of a believer's security and hope. Does that hope depend on what Jesus has done or on what we do, our law-keeping? If that's the case, which believer could ever be secure? And what will be now the basis for the unity and identity of the people of the Messiah? Is it trusting Jesus and receiving from Jesus God's spirit? Or, well, is it though in those who trust Jesus becoming Jews? Well, if unity is to be found in those who trust Jesus becoming Jews, that's saying that the only way to overcome the great ethnic divide between Jews and non-Jews is through the triumph of one group, 
over the other. And if that's the case, the gospel then becomes just a vehicle for Jewish nationalism, just as Islam, with its insistence that all must learn Arabic to read the Quran, is a vehicle for Arab nationalism. And, of course, there are a whole series of theological questions raised by this insistence on the law and circumcision, questions that Paul explores and answers in his letter to the Galatians. There he writes that an insistence on circumcision and law-keeping means Christ died for nothing, <laughs> means we abandon grace and we destroy the power and certainty of the promise. Oh, and it means we would rely on the flesh and not on the spirit. But the dispute is not settled by Paul handing out his letter to the Galatians and saying, just read this. No, it was settled by referring the matter to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem, the centre of the Jewish, the Jesus movement and still the home of those who were its founding preachers. And that's important. For the point of Acts 15 is that the decision they take is not just Paul carrying the day, persuading them by his oratory to his point of view. No, the point is that the decision is the common mind of all authority in the church, a common mind arrived at by considering what God had done, what God was doing and what God had said in the past in the prophets he would do. But the important point is that this is the decision that God gave. So after much debate, verse 7, the assembled elders and apostles gave their attention to three main contributions, those of Peter, of Paul and Barnabas, and of James. Firstly, Peter reminds them about what God had already done in saving Gentiles. He returns to the Cornelius episode that Luke has recorded for us in Acts chapter 10. Peter stood up, it said, and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Uh, Cornelius, whom we met in Acts 10, was a Roman centurion, clearly a Gentile. But Peter reminds the brethren that it was God's deliberate decision that Cornelius should hear the gospel and that Peter should preach it to them. In fact, we know how God brought that meeting about, giving a dream to Cornelius to send for Peter with instructions about where to find Peter at the house of Simon the Tanner, and then giving a vision to Peter that would embolden him to go to the home of a Gentile. Peter's preaching of the gospel to Cornelius was all God's work. And it was God who made clear Cornelius and his household's inclusion in the people of God by faith. Before Peter had finished speaking, before Cornelius was baptised with water, God poured his spirit upon them and they showed the same behaviour, Acts 10.46, speaking in tongues and extolling God that the apostles had shown when they received the spirit. 
There was no water baptism, no laying on of hands, no circumcision. This was the direct work of God. Testimony from God that, verse 9, he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Cornelius, the Gentile, had experienced the fulfilment of the promise of the coming of the Spirit made in Joel 2 and Ezekiel 36, and he'd experienced the fulfilment of that promise just by faith in Jesus. Cornelius and his household had been included in the renewed, the resurrected Israel, the Israel that would live in God's presence in the new heaven and earth just by faith in Jesus. And like sinful Israel, it was by grace, despite their law-breaking, not because of their law-keeping. Peter is saying, remember Cornelius. This is what we all know God through his spirit has done. There was no distinction between us and them, no different treatment of Cornelius because he was uncircumcised. And knowing that, says Peter, has consequences. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. To insist on circumcision and the keeping of the law to be included in the people of God is, says Peter, to put God to the test. And that shows you how serious an error it is. Even if their insistence sounds so religiously proper, the phrase putting God to the test recalls the wilderness generation who had rebelled against God and failed to enter the promised land. That generation said God in Psalm 95, put me to the test and put me to the proof though they had seen my work. That generation although they had witnessed God's power and faithfulness in delivering them from Egypt, still found fault with the way God was doing things and was insisting that God should do things their way. Peter is saying to those zealous for the law that to insist on your way, to insist on what seems right to you in the face of God's demonstration of the acceptance of the Gentiles solely on the basis of faith in in Jesus, that insistence is to be like that rebellious generation. It's to say, you know better than God how he should save and that you'll only accept God's work when it conforms to your opinion of how God should do things. That is to put yourself over God. So Peter's words are a serious warning. To put God to the test is to risk losing it all, losing your own share in salvation. And besides, says Peter, you are unreal about the role and power of the law. Israelite history and our own lives as Jews show that we constantly fail, he says, to keep the law, that it leads not to salvation but to condemnation. No, says Peter, verse 11, there is equality in salvation. The Gentiles' hope is our hope. (coughs) That salvation is through the grace of our Lord Jesus, not our law-keeping. It's by grace, not works. And so by faith, 
faith in the Lord Jesus and his work on the cross. So says Peter, remember what God has done. God has plainly not required circumcision or law-keeping in including Gentiles in the new covenant people, the people who receive his spirit. It was by grace through faith in the gospel. Well, Peter's contribution silenced the debate and gave room for the assembly to hear what God was now doing through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. And as they listened, verse 12, it was plain that Paul and Barnabas' mission was the mission of God as they heard of the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. God had testified that their message of salvation by faith in Jesus was from him. It was his message. He was the one now at work in the salvation of those Gentiles through the preaching of Paul and Barnabas. Having heard their report, James was now in a position to bring the discussion to a conclusion. After they'd finished speaking, James replies, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. So first of all, he supports Simon Peter. What happened to Cornelius was a God at work. God taking for himself from among the Gentiles a people for his name. That is, a people who would be identified as God's own by their commitment to God as he had revealed himself. His own people through whom he would display his glory in saving. Now, in the time of Moses, the people of God had been identified by a commitment to God as he revealed himself at Sinai. But now, that people is actually identified by their commitment to God as he's revealed himself in Jesus, his son. And there's no other requirement other than faith and repentance. No other requirement uh, to be part of God's people. And this, including the Gentiles, says James, is just what God had said he would do in his prophesied commitment in Amos 9 to rebuilding David's tent, rebuilding the glory of David's throne. That is, fulfilling his promise to have one of David's descendants establish an eternal kingdom. And of course, this is what Jesus has done. He reigns eternally. He is son of David according to the flesh and he is exalted to reign forever. He has rebuilt the tent of David. And the purpose? Well, Amos 9 goes on and says that the purpose of that restoration is that the remnant of mankind, that is the rest of humanity, may seek the Lord in particular, that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, who are called by my name, who belong to him, may come to the Lord. In Amos, these Gentiles can belong to God without becoming Jews. It's as Gentiles that the Lord attaches his name to them. That is, they don't have to become Jews to belong to the end-time people of God, the people who will live under the protection of David's greater son, the people who will have access to the Lord in his new temple, in the city of David. James says Amos prophesies that the Jewish Messiah will be the saviour of all humanity, that he'll have one people from the many. 
And he says, God has fulfilled this prophecy of the restoration of David's throne, not through law and circumcision, but through the reign of Jesus. Through Jesus' kingly work, his dying, rising and exaltation, and Jesus includes Gentiles in the people of God, as we've seen with Cornelius, through the preaching of the gospel and through Jew and Gentile responding to it in faith. In saving the Gentiles through faith in Jesus, including them in the people of God through faith in Jesus, God is doing exactly what he said he would do from of old. That is, says James, this has always been what God intended, always his purpose. And so, considering what God has done, what God is doing, and what God has said he would do, James gives his judgment, which will be adopted by the meeting. Therefore, my judgment is is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. So says James, we shouldn't make it difficult for Gentiles turning to God by believing the gospel. Uh, We should not add extra conditions to their belonging to the people of God. Moses and the Lord don't need more promoters. They've already been there for a long time everywhere. And so he's saying to the assembly, our job as Jesus' disciples is to promote the gospel of Jesus and inclusion amongst Jesus' people through responding to that gospel in repentance and faith. So why does he add those conditions or what seem like conditions in verse 20? You know, abstain from things polluted by idle sexual. Is this some kind of new, some kind of slimmed down law? Or are these temporary guidelines to facilitate relationship between Jews who cannot, for example, eat blood and Gentiles? Just concessions for harmony? Neither. Although these things do touch on sensitive matters that were areas of acute, acute suspicion of Gentiles by Jews. But you see, those suspicions focused on the Gentile participation in idolatry and the practices mentioned here were practices associated with idolatry and the subsequent feasting in pagan temples. See, James is calling on Gentile believers to make a complete and open break with idolatry, with the worship of false gods, to make a complete break with the worship of idols in idol temples and with the sexual immorality associated with that. Now, this is just what the gospel calls for. Paul had preached to the people at Lystra, Acts 14, that they should turn from these vain things, that's from the worship of idols, to a living God. And turning from idols was actually what was involved in believing the gospel. Uh, Paul says that it's reported of the Thessalonian believers that they had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. What James is doing is fleshing out that commitment to turn to the living God away from idols in ways that will remove suspicion and promote fellowship. But what he's insisting on fundamentally is that the people of God, in believing the gospel, 
make a complete break with the idolatry of their past. Well, having listened to Peter, Paul and Barnabas and James, the apostles and elders adopt unanimously James's judgment. And they write to the believers, verse 25, in this matter, that they've come to one accord, come to unanimous agreement. And they agree that nothing is to be added to the gospel that the Gentile believers have heard and believed from Paul and Barnabas. In fact, they indicate, verse 25 and 26, their strong support for Paul and Barnabas. And they make clear that this decision is in accord with God's decision. Verse 28, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit, they write. Now, they're not claiming that somehow the Spirit is mystically at work in their agreement, that they were all somehow, oh, through their inner feelings, led to this decision. No, by that phrase... They are acknowledging the Spirit's objective testimony to the inclusion of the Gentiles in the people of God by faith in Jesus. They are pointing to what we also have heard. God at work in saving Cornelius by faith in Jesus alone. God at work in supporting the apostles' preaching of salvation by faith in Jesus alone, supporting their preaching with signs and wonders. And yes, God at work from centuries before, in giving the scriptures that speak of the inclusion of the Gentiles as Gentiles by faith in the Messiah alone. This is all the work of the Spirit, God making his decision, his way plain. And the brethren say they have received this testimony and they've conformed their thinking to it just as it conforms to their own experience of salvation, which has not been by law-keeping, but by grace through faith in Jesus. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And having come to this conclusion, they then take pains to communicate it carefully as we heard. They write, verse 23, giving a clear and permanent record of their decision so there'll be no ambiguity or possibility of contradiction and they send reputable messengers, Judas and Silas, people of standing and ability who can explain and enlarge on the discussion and conclusion, who can support the judgment and ensure its reception. And that was especially important in a culture important in a culture where word of mouth, the testimony of witnesses, was actually trusted more. You know, this care in communicating their decisions is actually a sign of respect to these Gentile believers. And their thoughtfulness and clarity had a good outcome. So they take the message down to Antioch and it says, when they had read it, they, that is, the Gentile believers, the church of Antioch, rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas is coming and the message they bring that it's by faith in Jesus that we are received into God's people and have a share of salvation brings joy to the believers. They're encouraged because they know now that they are not second-class believers. They fully belong simply on the grounds of repentance and faith and there is no distinction. Jesus has saved them. 
and they're not abandoned to relying on their own works. And so they can get on and keep sharing the gospel with confidence. It's the gospel of God in need of no correction or addition. And as we read on in Acts, we see that the gospel mission receives new impetus from this decision. From here, the gospel will go to Europe and then all the way to Rome, in a sense, to the furthest corners of the earth. You and I can be grateful for those deliberations at Jerusalem because there God preserved the gospel for us. We don't need to become Jews to be saved by the Jewish saviour Jesus. We don't need to keep the law for salvation. We are saved simply by turning away from our idols to believe that the crucified Jesus is Lord, the one with authority to judge and forgive, the one who forgives everyone who calls on his name, who calls out to him as Lord and Saviour. We are saved by grace, by God's generous kindness to us, not by our works earning his favour. We are saved to live in the power of the Spirit, and not to go back on relying on our own efforts. And all that is good news. In fact, it is great news. But there are some other conclusions we can draw. Let me give you three takeaways, two kind of less important than the last, but three. There will always be conflicts, and we need ways of resolving conflicts, ways of coming to conclusions about the truth that promote the truth, and we have a model of that in Acts 15. What do we see there? There was consultation with others. The Antioch believers knew that they were part of a, a bigger group, not just an isolated community, and that they knew that the issue involved the bigger group because it involved the Christian gospel. And so they consulted. And in that consultation, as it's reported by Luke, the issue was clearly defined. That's always helpful. There was discussion and then the testimony of the apostles was listened to. (coughs) The scriptures were consulted and interpreted in the light of their fulfilment in Jesus. And so a common mind was arrived at because all were willing to listen to Jesus' messengers, the apostles. And then the decision was clearly and thoughtfully communicated to those it affected. Now, that is not a bad model, is it? Oh, and we also see here a good gospel principle articulated. We mustn't make it difficult for people to become believers. We must not burden people with extra gospel requirements. You see, there is always going to be a cost in believing the gospel. For those early Gentile believers, it was the cost of breaking with idolatry and the exclusion from the social and commercial life of their communities that that would bring. But we must not add to that, to that cost, the burden of people conforming to human traditions and requirements that the gospel does not ask of them, requirements that tend to make those new believers second-class citizens in the kingdom and can even undermine the gospel. So what do we demand, explicitly or implicitly, spoken or unspoken, for people to belong to us, that make people feel excluded unless they conform to our expectations? Uh, You can look back over recent church history and 
long church history, to see those requirements, in a sense, keeping up, coming up again and again. Views of the Sabbath, or perhaps the more recent us, oh, to become a Christian, you never dance, you never drink, you don't put on makeup. Maybe it's standards of child-rearing. Christians can only have children who are well-behaved and can sit in church. Maybe it's unthinking obedience to leadership. We should only expect from believers what the gospel calls for, repentance and faith in Jesus that makes a clear break with the idols of our past and idolatrous behaviour, whether it's the worship of money or finding identity in sexuality. It is repentance and faith in Jesus that includes us in God's people and we are saved by grace, not conforming to human rules. But the great encouragement of Acts 15 is that the gospel is God's gospel and that he is going to ensure that it continues to spread and that through its preaching he will fulfil a purpose to have a people of his own from every nation and tongue under heaven to multiply Abraham's descendants, as it were, beyond number. You see, just as he protected the gospel mission from external threat in Acts 13 and 14, you know, the lies of Elamas and the violence of those who opposed the gospel, just as he protected it there so that many were saved, so here in Acts 15 he is protected the gospel from internal threat, the errors of those who would corrupt it and bring people into bondage again. It is God who ensured the outcome of the Jerusalem Council, an outcome that meant the apostles could preach on, keep on preaching the true gospel, preach it with renewed confidence that this is the gospel given by God for the whole world. You see, God wants the Lord Jesus glorified as the saviour of the world and he wants his people saved. So before the gospel goes to Europe, before it goes to Rome, it's been made clear that this is a gospel for the whole world, for all peoples, and not just a cover for Jewish nationalism. And it's been made clear that this is the gospel of a saviour, Jesus, who genuinely saved. The Christian message is not another doomed human self-help project. It proclaims a saviour who will give us eternal life on the basis of what he has done for us on the cross and not on the basis of what we do. Oh, and it makes clear that there is only one people of God, those who've repented and put their trust in Jesus and any and all may join. Now, brothers and sisters, this is still the case. The gospel of Jesus is the gospel of God, our living almighty creator. He is saving people through the gospel. That is his project. It's God who drives and directs the spread of the gospel. It's God who is determined that this gospel will go to the whole world. Opposition won't stop him. Error won't stop him. Oh, sickness and disease won't stop him. So you and I should have confidence in God, confidence 
in God who saved us through this gospel freely by his grace through the preaching of Jesus crucified and risen, saved us by faith alone on the basis of what Christ has done alone, Christ's death alone. We should have confidence in our God and in his gospel. And knowing that it's God's project to save, we should to make sure that we're getting on board with it by preaching it, speaking it, sharing it clearly and confidently. And yes, for some, giving our lives to that work. You may have noticed the last verse in the passage. Paul and Barnabas remain in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord. And the last few words, with many others also. We all should share the gospel. But brothers and sisters, some of us ought to consider whether we want to be included amongst those many others who alongside Paul and Barnabas share the gospel of God that saves, saves all who will call on the name of the Lord Jesus, saves them forever and completely. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that you were at work at that meeting to preserve the gospel for us. We thank you that you have made it clear that it's through faith in Jesus, crucified and risen, that we become your people, that made it clear that we are saved by your grace freely and not because of what we do. We thank you that you are the God who saves. We thank you that you have given us our Saviour, Jesus. We thank you that you have sent the gospel message into the whole world. Our gracious God, knowing that this message of Jesus crucified and risen is your gospel, the living God addressing us, calling us to turn back to him by putting our faith in his Son, we pray that we would believe it and we pray in your mercy that we would share it with confidence so that we can share in the work of salvation you sent your son into the world to bring. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.